Hey guys, welcome to the Enlighten Me podcast. I'm your host, Mackenzie, and I'm super pumped to have you here. This week, I am talking with my friend, Nate Montgomery. Nate started Sultan Light Ministries with the help of several other awesome people in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, back in 2004. Sultan Light is a ministry that looks to serve the basic needs for those in the community, such as poverty and hunger. It started back in 2004, but a few years into running the ministry, and Nate and those that he worked with realized that they were really just helping to contribute to cycles of poverty rather than create lasting change by giving free handouts to those that were in need. So in 2014, after much research and thought, they relaunched a new model of addressing poverty in the local area that has been dramatically effective. And that's what we're talking about today, an effective model for alleviating poverty. Now, many of you know that Champaign-Urbana was my former home, where the University of Illinois is. Go Illini! But like I mentioned on my last episode, we just recently made the move to Charleston, South Carolina, which is where we're at now, trying to find housing and starting our new jobs. But I thought this was the perfect way to say farewell to my old community by interviewing such an awesome stakeholder in the community, who has done so much for the people there and had such a tremendous impact. Salt and Light is near and dear to my heart as I spent some time volunteering there and got to see this awesome model that I talked about put into action. The bulk of Nate and I's conversation today revolves around really defining what poverty actually looks like and addressing a lot of commonly held stereotypes about poverty and the people that it affects. We also talk about this new model that Nate has implemented, where he got the ideas, and just how he has seen it work at Salt and Light. Before we get started, I want to give everybody a few heads up on a couple things. First, Salt and Light, as I said, is a ministry, a Christian ministry. I wanted to make a note in this because I believe in their model and the way they base it off of biblical values, so Nate does talk a little bit about his own personal faith. But this isn't meant to be exclusive in any way, and it definitely isn't just for Christians. The model that Salt and Light uses is really applicable to anyone, no matter what your beliefs are, and so I don't want that to deter you from listening in today. So keep an open mind, and also with that, I want to note that we are mostly talking about poverty in the U.S. Again, that's not meant to be exclusive, that's only because that's where Nate and I are both from, and both living currently. But again, I really do think that his model and what he has to share about poverty is probably applicable to a lot of different geographical regions. So I encourage you, no matter where you're living, whether it's in the U.S. or in another country, to listen in and keep an open mind and think about how this could relate to you and your community. Nate explains that poverty looks different in every single community and that he's gotten requests to help with efforts all across the U.S., and turn them down because he says you have to really know a community to know how to help it. I think that's a great thought and it just goes to show that every community has unique needs and so the model that has worked in the Champaign-Urbana area won't be the perfect fit for every region of the world, let alone every city in the U.S., but I still think it has some great ideas and it's a great model to base poverty alleviation off of. Lastly, I know this is definitely my longest episode yet, and if you are seeing the hour and a half plus mark and getting intimidated, I challenge you to just give it your best effort. A lot of my interviews tend to run over the hour mark, and I have to cut a good amount of content out, 
But when I was editing this episode, I just couldn't find anything that I felt good about taking out. I loved everything Nate had to share because it challenged so much of the way that I thought before that I just felt like I needed to leave it all in. It was all such rich content. So if you can't listen to it all in one setting, that's okay. Maybe you have a long drive like I just recently had and you're going to breeze right through it. Or maybe you need to break it up into a couple different work commutes. Whatever way you do it, I just encourage you to listen to all of the content because it's super rich and I just know you're going to get a lot out of it. I do have to admit that part of the reason we get off topic is because Nate reveals something that I did not know about he and his family that I was pretty much fangirling all about and had to ask a lot of questions about. I'm not going to say what it is because I want to keep you in suspense, but just look out for that because it's pretty baller. So I don't want to add too much time onto this. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Nate. All right. So Nathan, <laughs> welcome to my podcast. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. So can you just tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? You know, I'm a 40-year-old husband and father of four. And, uh, you know, from here in central Illinois, born mm-hmm. and raised, uh, never lived more than 45 minutes from Champaign-Urbana, and so that those are that's my roots. Mm-hmm. And and uh, you know, for me, it's been uh, an interesting journey growing up in uh, not a Christian home, mm-hmm. uh, and in in just the oldest of three, and and navigating that, navigating that in a home where um, you know both parents were present up until sixth grade, and very much you know I felt you know kind of a what I felt was a typical loving home, but one with mm-hmm. drugs and alcohol and not typical, I mm-hmm. found out later in life. And so, you know, from sixth grade on, it was just my dad and, and my mm-hmm. brother and sister and I. And, and so, you know, I, I've experienced a lot of um, things that a lot of kids today have with, yeah. you know, not having both parents, not, you know, the, the, the negative influences of drugs and alcohol at home, and uh, but also growing up, you know, uh, in a, in a pr- predominantly white community as a white guy and, and, and all that that uh, entails and affords. And so, you know, but then, you know, coming to know the Lord uh, mm-hmm. in my early 20s and mm-hmm. just kind of figuring that out and, yeah. and pursuing that and following that and how that ultimately led me into what I've been doing for the last 15 years with Salt and Light. Yeah, great. So can you tell us about Salt and Light and what this organization does? Yeah, so so when we started Salt and Light, it was really um, evangelical in nature. Was the drive? It was mm-hmm. there was a few of us guys that came together with a desire to share our faith, and we wanted to do it in what we felt like was Christ's model, which was meeting people where they were at, meeting their needs, mm-hmm. and through that, then then sharing the gospel. And so I started in all ignorance of poverty and mm-hmm. need and the issues in our area, um, but with that drive. Um, mm-hmm. But very quickly came to realize my role um, in relationship to those that were coming through the door and and, and into the community, Mm -hmm. uh, which which was um, not what I expected as people were laying their burdens down as we would talk and pray and things. And and so it really kind of challenged me right away to kind of seek really God's guidance and direction because I was not not trained as a pastor. That was not my background. I actually Mm -hmm. was in um, corporate world, uh, doing a number of things, including statistical problem solving as a quality engineer for a foundry that was a supplier for General Motors. 
And, 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 and so I was kind of moved from that into where God had me here. And so I didn't have the training to, to be a pastor, to, to be in that role. And so it was really challenging when people were kind of laying these burdens down and, yeah. and, and asking for prayer and talking about these things that at 26, I didn't have a clue. Yeah. And so, so it was very much for me a journey, journey of discovery of who I was and who I was being called to be, but then also in my role you know, what that looked like. Mm-hmm. And so Salt and Light, we started with meeting basic needs as a food pantry and a clothing closet and and very quickly grew into the largest one of those in, in our area, all the while just really handing things out. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so during that time, I began to see um, the very real generational cycles of poverty play out right yeah. in front of me. Yeah. And and so over, I think we we're probably about eight years in or so where we'd been around long enough that now I was seeing um, kids who had stood in line with their parents now standing in line as young adults mm-hmm. on their own. Wow. And so I, that, I was wrestling with that. Yeah. I was really struggling with, you know, acknowledging that, you know, I knew we were doing some good and I knew that as far as, you know, kind of walking out our, our faith, we were doing that. But at the same time, I saw a large number of individuals for whom what we were doing was not really affecting lasting change in their lives. Yeah. And so, so during that time, I was introduced to a book, When Helping Hurts. Yes. And, that. and that was revolutionary mm-hmm. for, for us and for me here at Salt and Light. I mean, that was, that was the, the light shining down, angels singing moment of epiphany, <laughs> right? Like, oh my gosh, I mean, this is what I've seen. This is what I've experienced. Um, but it was, it was articulated in such a way that it just resonated with me and it helped yeah. to give some clear direction, at least ideologically, to where we might head. And okay. so that was like a two and a half, three year journey of our staff and our board wrestling with this book and the ideologies and and what that might mean for us as an organization and so we we wrestled with that ultimately launching in 2014 with our model that we currently have today which is really the antithesis to the one-way giving model a model that's really built on engaging individuals and doing with instead of for so that they might realize the fullness of who it is they have Mm. been created to be Really cool. That's really cool. And so you helped to start Salt and Light in 2004. 2004. Okay. And then you came up with a new model 10 years later. Yep. Okay. That's great. And now what's your official title? Yeah. So my official title is executive director. Okay. Um, And so how many people started with you in 2004? So when we opened in January of 04, I was the only staff person. Okay. Uh, And so it was pretty much board and volunteer driven. Uh, And then the fall of that year, we added our first person. And a guy came to us from, uh, he had been with Youth for Christ, uh, came came and was with us for almost seven years, six and a half years. And so, uh, but it was, we were pretty small for for quite a while because we added him that fall. And then it was a couple more years before we added our next person. And so that was in 2007. So, and then there was only three of us. In t- all the way up until 2009. And, okay. And so, so we, 2009 was kind of when a lot of things changed. Okay. Uh, we were, we were um, nominated, our family was nominated, and then on the show, Extreme Home Makeover. 
And Your family? Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. Okay, I remember I watched that with my mom religiously when okay. I was younger, so I, I wonder if I saw you on there. 09, 2009. <laughs> that is so cool. Yeah, okay. so we were, it was like, we were the next to last, there was like one more season or two more seasons. It was near the okay. end of the show's okay. uh, reign. And so, yeah, so we were we were a part of that. And so, and so they highlighted us, but salt and light. And, yeah. and so that brought like this whole nother level of awareness, uh, locally and beyond to what we were doing and, and really just even raised the credibility, right. Of what yeah. we were doing in the eyes of those that had no idea. Wow. And so, so with that, um, you know, we grew dramatically overnight as far as the number of people we were serving. So with a show like that, you have an immediate, you have an immediate, uh, but temporary kind of influx of donations for yeah. sure. Um, but so for us, we had that. It was about six months to a year where we saw an increase, but then it kind of kind of came back down to earth a little bit. Um, but we also saw a huge increase in volunteers, uh, which for us was a big, big thing because uh, our work, especially within the clothing closet and whatnot, was so labor intensive mm-hmm. um, that that was a big deal. And the vo- number of volunteers, actually that level stayed up. That was one thing, that was one huge impact of the show that really, you know, kind of maintained for us beyond that. And so so that kind of, I would say, put us on the map yeah. uh, here what in the cool community. Yeah, a cool way to be put on the map. That's awesome. I it was that. intense. It yeah. was intense. I was mean, it? it was just... It was a whirlwind and it was such an awesome experience that, you know, going through it in the midst of it, it was, there was a lot, um, and it was a bit draining, uh, but, but oh my gosh, I do it all over again. I mean, obviously it was a great benefit to our family, but, but also salt might, I mean, it it really did. That's so cool. That's so cool. (laughs) How long did it actually take for them to do the house? A week. A week. Uh, They actually, they actually said the build time was 96 hours. And so, because the builders, you know, like the show when it first started, it was, um, they would just kind of rehab the home, right? Right. It was several years before they were like, hey, we're going to tear it down and build a new one. (laughs) And so at some point, the builders, you know, the contractors who were the ones responsible for the build, they they started tightening it because it was almost like a race from one show, one build to the next build. Yeah. You know, they wanted to do it better. They wanted to do right. it faster. And so they would time it. And so yeah. our builder, they timed the actual build time because there, there was times where they would have to stop for filming purposes. Okay. So it's like they would kind of stop the clock, you know. Yeah. So the actual build time, they said, was like 96 hours. Wow. So. That is crazy. Are you still in the same house? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we've been. So, yes, that was 09. Uh, August of 09 was when they showed up and everything happened. And the show aired in October. And, yeah, we've been there been there ever since. Wow, that's so cool. And did you, did, like, friends nominate you or <coughs> something like that? Yeah, so they were, that was pretty cool, too. They were looking for a family in this area. And I think it was because they had a builder who had already said they would do it. Okay. okay. And, and so they were looking for a family in central Illinois mm-hmm. that fit this uh, week of service model. And so uh, I think it was it was Obama's first term and there was he was gonna have this national week of service. Oh. And so they wanted a family that kind of fit that. So this okay. was slated to air during that yeah, time. Sure. And so they were looking in the area and they had contacted the local United Way. Uh, who, who, you know, knew me, knew the, the organization. Yeah. Uh, but it was interesting. They actually were, they had reached out to a friend of ours about nominating this friend. This friend had cancer and um, their home could, could use it as well. Yeah. And it had some circumstances that were certainly uh, merited it. 
Yeah. Um, but the friend um, who, who we were, you know, not super close, but knew each other, nominated us. Wow. And That's and so, cool. so yeah, so it was it was it was it was pretty crazy. Oh my gosh, I love that. I didn't mean for this to turn into an interview <laughs> about that, but I'm so intrigued. Oh no, I get it. it, it I we get questions all the time. Okay. I'm used to it. I mean, because okay. the show will rerun. Yeah. Um, you know, in other countries, oh, um, all okay. over this country, yeah. and whenever it does, we'll get a full flurry of yeah. emails, questions. That's so you know, cool. and every time I run into someone, especially for like the first time, yeah, you know, that maybe new or finds out, uh, they always okay. ask questions. Yeah. Okay. And so that's so cool. It's oh no my biggie. Gosh. Okay, I love it. All <coughs> right, so I want to talk more about salt and light and the new model eventually but first can we start talking about poverty in the u.s and what that really looks like i feel like for many people they know that poverty is a problem but they don't really know what it looks like or maybe they think oh that's really a problem in other countries but in the u.s it it doesn't really happen or or maybe that just looks like homelessness and they know that's an issue but they don't really know that much about poverty so could you talk about that yeah, so, you know, poverty is such a complex issue, right? right. Not, not just internationally, but nationally. And for our yeah. conversation, obviously, we're focused on poverty in the U.S. Yeah. And I think, I think the most important thing for people to remember is that there is no one description of what poverty looks like. Mm-hmm. Depending on the environment, whether it's a urban or rural, uh, depending on um, the economy of that area, depending on the geography of that area, poverty can look like a lot of different things. And I think that for us, we tend to connect poverty with a lack of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Especially a lack of food. Like hunger and poverty tend to go like go hand in hand, right? Right. And our psyche and how we tend to engage sure. need. Yeah. And there's certainly a lot of truth to that, a lot of validity in that, but there's a lot of misunderstanding as well around what that looks like. Uh, certainly, when we talk about poverty in developing countries, you know, we are often talking about survival, right? Yeah. We, are, we are talking about enough food, shelter, resources to survive. Yeah. Um, in the U.S., most generally that's not the case. Right. It's not to say that we don't have those kinds of circumstances, but they are not the majority of right. what we see. Sure. Um, that what we see is very different um, in our country, in, in particular as it relates to the issues surrounding food. And I feel like, unfortunately, that's where our largest misunderstanding relates, mm. is how it relates to hunger. And, yeah. and I think that, unfortunately, a lot of that misunderstanding has been perpetrated by organizations and lobbyists who most directly benefit from uh, by working with that particular issue. And so what I mean by that is, you know, when we think about hunger, when, when, when someone says, when they talk about people in need and people who are hungry, right, we tend to think about our, our picture, our mental picture is people who don't have enough to eat, mm-hmm. right? They are struggling to have enough food to feed themselves and their families from one day to the next. The reality of it is, is when we see billboards or we see um, research that that espouses so many uh, people uh, that are struggling with hunger or so many kids, especially, who are hungry, Mm -hmm. that's misleading. Uh, The USDA, on their own website, actually states that they have no measurement for hunger or the number of hungry people. 
uh, and they're the ones, right, doing most of the research as it relates yeah, to these issues. Sure. They say they, they don't measure hunger because they recognize that it's a, that's a multifaceted, nuanced thing to call someone hungry. So instead, what they measure is food insecurity. Well, food insecurity is a whole different animal than hunger. Food insecurity, as far as the USDA and how they define it, there are actually four different levels for food mm -hmm. insecurity, basically from high to very low food security. And in order for a family or a household to be considered food insecure, there's a questionnaire that's administered. And, and so for a family, I believe it's like 18 questions. And if you answer yes to three of them, your family is considered food insecure. Okay. Well, the lower level or the higher level, because basically high food security and marginal food security are kind of like the two high levels. And the two low levels are low food security and very low food mm -hmm. security. Well, to be considered at the low food security level, um, you answer those three yes. Well, the definition of low food security is that they report a reduced quality, variety, or desirability of their diet. Little or no indication of reduced food intake. Okay. Right? So what it's so so it's telling us that you could be considered low food security if you don't have uh, the choices, right? The okay. access to healthy options or very many options. Mm -hmm. But that does not mean that you're eating less or that you're not eating enough. Okay. Right? So, so that would not be the kind of picture that we would typically have as it right. relates to hunger. Sure. And so the problem is, is that if you're a nonprofit organization or a lobbyist group that's working on behalf of food-related issues, right? Trying to explain what food insecurity is or putting up the number of children who are food insecure doesn't market real well, right? That doesn't have the same emotional pull that when we use the word hunger does. And so what happens is, is this research that's done that identifies the number of food insecure families, people, children, these groups take this data, they take this information, and then they simply call it hunger. Okay. And so, so for me, what frustrates me in that is it's really a misrepresentation yeah. of what is really going on here, yeah. right? And, and as a problem solver, is that being my background is kind of how I'm wired, right? The, when you kind of walk through the steps for solving any problem, yeah. right? In order to do that effectively, the first thing you have to do is identify what the root issue is, right? Or what, yeah. the, what, what the heart of the problem is. And so what happens here is, is by really misidentifying what the problem really is, we will never come up with a solution. Mm -hmm. And so, so for individuals like you or I, when we see a billboard that says one in five for four or whatever kids are hungry, right? We're moved by that. Yeah. And, and, and we see that. So then we think, well, if, if having enough food is the problem, right? Well, then, yeah, we should give people food, right? right. That, that's a reasonable response. And so in developing countries where often uh, the need for emergency assistance um, for, for that, for food is needed, okay, that's, that's a reasonable response to give someone something. The problem is, is that if it's not the actual issue and we intervene in that way, then we're not actually helping to advance mm -hmm. A real solution. Mm -hmm. And so I think in our country, a lot of it boils down to how we identify the differences between emergency or crisis needs mm -hmm. um, and what are chronic 
needs. And so in our country, by and large, most of the uh, food issues are chronic, right? Okay. This, this isn't, it isn't a, an emergency situation. It's not a situation where I need enough food to feed my family today or this week, or we won't eat, right? We, right. we, we will not survive. Um, and, and so that's not, not, not generally the situation. Yeah. It's also not <clears throat> um, a situation where if I give you food that you're not going to have the same problem next week or next month. Um, that it's more of an ongoing sort of a situation. And so um, when it's an emergency, once again, great to come in with that emergency help. But if it's not, if it's a chronic need, if it's an ongoing need, and I intervene with an emergency intervention, like giving you food, unfortunately, what happens over time is we develop dependency and we create entitlement while diminishing the individual. And I think that's the most important part that Unfortunately, in our one-way giving models, especially for food, what we're unconsciously communicating is that you, the recipient, have nothing to offer, nothing to contribute to this relationship or to this situation. You have need, and I, as the provider, have things, and so I'm going to give you things, yeah. and that's the extent of the relationship. Yeah. Regardless of whether that's true or not, if every interaction you have with social service organizations, whether they be private or, or government ran, if every interaction unconsciously communicates that to you over and over and over again, how long is it before you begin to believe it? How long is it before you begin to be paralyzed in your situation, feeling no sense of control, feeling powerlessness in where you're at? And so, right. you know, it's, it, it's unfortunately our food systems and how we've addressed that issue of hunger has been, I think, the greatest perpetrator of this diminishment of self, of, of others, and how they see themselves, how they see their capacity. Because I think, you know, for us, that's why a lot of our approach has been built on this idea of um, the affirmation of dignity, right? Uh, because I think that a person must first believe in their own capacity before they're going to take steps to move forward and affecting any kind of change in their lives. And so we must first affirm that you have capacity, right? Yeah. That, that in your humanity and in, in how God created you, that you were gifted with skills, gifts, and abilities that you can use to not only affect change in your situation, but in the community at large. And so, so unfortunately, when we engage in a lot of these one-way giving programs, namely for food, it, it has the absolute reverse effect of what we would hope to accomplish. Yeah. I mean, I know that, so Lyndon Johnson first declared war on poverty back in, uh, what, 1964, 67, something mm -hmm. like that, I think 67. And so, um, so he declared war on poverty and, and the idea was recognizing that we needed some safety nets, right, to address a lot of these needs coming out of, especially the depression era and a lot of things that had yeah. happened culturally. And so, so we start to embark on this campaign and we start to enact programs designed at helping and assisting uh, individuals so that they're not um, just stuck, right, in this right. state of poverty. And so 1971, just a few years after this first is enacted, I think our poverty rate is around 12.5%, uh, 12.6%, right? Well, since that time, in the last 50 years, we've spent over $23 trillion um, just within our government that does not yeah. include nonprofit work, yeah. but we spent over $23 trillion on different types of uh, quote-unquote entitlement programming, right? And that, that kind of runs uh, the gambit, uh, yeah. whether it be from uh, health care type stuff to food assistance, but over $23 yeah. trillion. Well, today we're sitting at a poverty rate of just over 12.5%. So, uh -huh. 
So, you know, we have to look at that and say that, okay, in 1971, we had over 20 million Americans, men, women, and children, who were struggling with this bleak prospect of poverty. And we go and spend $23 trillion over the following 50 to 60 years, and here we are with over 40 million Americans Mm. who are struggling with this bleak outlook on life. So what have we accomplished? Yeah. And for me, it's kind of like Einstein's definition of insanity, right? You know, when we do, you know, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results, that's what our war on poverty has looked like, unfortunately. Yeah. And, and I think there's a lot of reasons for that. But I do believe that a big part of it has to do with how we have not engaged individuals in moving themselves forward and instead yeah. have become paternalistic in our approach and through that, diminish yeah. them in the process. Yeah, I I think the point of chronic needs versus emergency needs is really interesting. And while you were talking about that too, I was even thinking a lot of times with the food donations that people are giving for those one-way donations, they are not usually often healthy choices anyways because they have to be things that can't perish, right? Right. Which are not that good for you. Like that's a lot of, you know, processed food. And so (laughs) I think that's even kind of ironic in and of itself that a lot of times those donations aren't even going to help the real problem of food insecurity, right? Well, yeah. You know, that's the thing. It is. It's funny. when we So when we were a food pantry purchasing from a local food bank, uh, the options that we had were very limited. And they were almost entirely high-processed, bad-for-you stuff, right? And, and so sheer quantity will alleviate hunger, right? Mm-hmm. But, but like you said, it's funny that when you look at the definition of, of food insecurity and that a, a big part of that has to do with access to healthy options, yeah. yet the intervention that we're using in our food bank and food pantry system isn't actually by and large providing healthy options. It's kind of, it's, if it weren't so sad, it would be hilarious at the ineffectiveness of the program we've designed. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I think that probably (coughs) stems from what you were saying is that people don't really understand the problem, right? Like in our minds, we're thinking, oh, people don't have food. Well, then they'll, they'll take anything, right? But that's not really the case. People have food. It's just that there's not enough of the healthy stuff. So thank you for clarifying that problem. And I think, too, that enlightens me in that how can we have a country that where there's hunger, but there's also so much food waste? Because food waste is a huge problem. So we think of that, too. Like, well, if we're just wasting this food, we should donate it. And so I think that clarifies a lot of things and probably... Yeah, it really helps people understand what the real problem is a lot better. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's the key. I mean, I think, you know, I've tried to just do away with using the word hunger as it relates mm-hmm. to food issues in the U.S., mm-hmm. right? Because of the mental picture. I mean, that's right. the thing. I mean, that has that mental picture has been generated over decades, right? Sure. It's, 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 it's a picture that is synonymous in every community. You know, when we hear the word, that, that picture is generated of the, of the kid who is struggling, doesn't have enough to eat. Um, and so we, we have to start using appropriate language if we want to, to paint an appropriate picture. Yeah. And, and I think, unfortunately, the hunger word has been co-opted. And, I, you know, it's unfortunately, I, I feel like there's a, a multitude of reasons why we're where we're at with it. I think, one, 
politicians generally, as it relates to poverty and hunger, it's a political football that's used to get elected and retain power. And that's on both sides of the aisle. And, and so, so they really don't know that they don't know themselves. And they're so far removed from the front lines that they have no idea how the policies that they enact actually impact the need on the ground. At the same time, unfortunately, the nonprofit industry, I'll call it, in our country is a multi-billion dollar industry. And in my experience and a lot of what I witnessed, it can happen where, especially the larger the organization, it can become about perpetuating the organization rather than it does actually accomplishing the mission for which it was founded. And so because of that, then we will cut corners with the truth in order to advance our cause. And ultimately, at the end of the day, who that hurts are the people that we set out to help to begin with. Yeah. And, and so until there's ownership taken of that and, and, and actually people educate themselves individually so that they can hold organizations accountable until that happens, we won't see change. And unfortunately, that's on us as individuals. I, I feel like for far too long, so much of our service, and this is true in the church, out of the church, I don't care. So much of our service has been more about us than mm-hmm. has been about the people we claim to help. It's about how do I feel? What do I get out of it? Does it mm-hmm. look good on my application or my resume? Yeah. Does it fit in my schedule? Yeah. Uh, you, you know, it hasn't been as much about the other, the person that I'm supposedly trying to help. And as long as it's about me, then I'm okay with outputs and I don't really care about outcomes. Yeah. And those outputs look great and that's fine. But the more it becomes about the other, the more my service, my desire to help becomes about the other, the more concerned I'm going to be with what are the outcomes of what I'm actually giving to, of what I'm actually spending my time doing. What does that look like? And then when I began to dig into that, I'm going to see these things for myself. I'm going to see the brokenness and the systems that we've created, mm-hmm. and it's no longer going to be good enough. Yeah. And so it has to start with us as individuals being accountable for why we're doing what we're doing and then holding accountable those things that we support that are supposed to be doing it. That's really good. One thing I'm wondering is we've talked a lot about hunger. Are there other parts of poverty in our country specifically that need a lot of attention right now? You know, I think when we talk about poverty, really ultimately what we're talking about, the biggest negative impact of of poverty as a whole is opportunity. I think that certainly we have systemic issues mm-hmm. um, that have related to race yep. in particular yeah. for, for, for you know, decades and decades, uh, generation upon generation. What I see, what I personally see is a socioeconomic divide that is an even larger issue. What I mean by that is the worst thing you can be in our country is poor, right? The only thing that might be worse than that is to be poor and or poor and Latino, to be poor and the minority group, right? Yeah. Um, but, but what being poor does out of the gate is automatically, dramatically limit your opportunities. Mm-hmm. And without opportunities to the same levels of education, without opportunities to the same levels of business, without opportunities to the same level of, of things that really come with being part of a, of a socioeconomic structure that, that empowers right, the wealthy, without having access to that, your capacity is limited right before you even start, right? And so I think that, you know, unfortunately, the word redistribution 
was co-opted as something that has a really negative connotation, right? That talks mm -hmm. about taking something from those that have and giving to those that have not. And, it, <clears throat> and I think that, you know, when we, in that context, there's a lot, there is a reason for, for, for viewing that negatively. But I think that we need to look at redistribution really as a matter of opportunity. And how do we distribute, maybe not even use the word redistribute, but how do we distribute an equality of opportunity? Mm -hmm. for everyone, regardless of their income level, regardless of the color of their skin, regardless of the co country of their origin, how do we distribute an equality of opportunity? Because that is, that's really what poverty is about, right? That's the biggest, most negative side effect of poverty is, is that diminishment of opportunity because we see so many individuals who have tremendous capacity, but without having the opportunity to realize that will never attain the levels of success that they can. And, and it's, you know, I, I had this, I was having this conversation actually last night with my almost 18 year old as he is beginning to wrestle with a lot of these things and a lot of, yeah. you know, the, the videos and the speeches and the groups and the marches and the things that he sees, you know, we were talking about some of this and, and we were talking about the reality that do we live in a country where anyone can start from nothing and become something? Yeah, we, we do. We, we, we live in a country where that is a possibility. Mm -hmm. Now, does that mean that it is a normative opportunity? No, it, that, that's the thing that he, he would want to point to anecdotal evidence that you can come from nothing and become something. And I agree with that and I affirm that. The problem with anecdotal evidence is does, does not, it does not in any way empirically prove uh, the realistic opportunity of that happening for individuals who are coming from nothing. And so, so we cannot completely ignore the things that have happened over the last 100, 200 years, both in our country and around the world, yeah. that have created a starting line that is in a different place, mm -hmm. depending on what you look like and where you come from. Yeah. And when we talk about equity, that's about moving the starting line. Yeah. We have an equality of opportunity, but we do not have an equity of opportunity. And those are, those are not the same thing. And, and unfortunately, you know, I, this is something I wrestle with coming from a, a, a pretty conservative upbringing, a non-Christian conservative upbringing where I was taught, you know what, uh, a person, a man's lot in life is what he makes of it, right? You, yeah. you pull yourself up by the bootstraps, you yeah. do what you got to do, you work two, three jobs, whatever it takes, but it's on you where you yeah. end up, right? And as a white guy... There's a tremendous amount of truth to that, right? Right, because I I recognize and acknowledge now that that my equity of opportunity was equal to, to most anyone else. Now, granted, there's still socioeconomic barriers that play a role, whether you're white or not. Yeah. Um, but I did recognize I, I do recognize now that I, I certainly had a higher degree of opportunity yeah. simply because of the color of my skin and who then I was interacting with and who was in power. Yeah. That most of them looked like me. And so, so, unfortunately, we're wrestling with that right now as a country, yeah. right? There's a lot of people who want to completely ignore any notion mm -hmm. of any kind of privilege based on skin color, yeah. right? Um, but I also fear that we have the other, the other side of the coin is, is that people want to, there are some that want to place all of the responsibility on that skin color. Right. And I think that we have to find a happy medium, right? Mm -hmm. There's both 
personal responsibility and systemic issues that I have to work yeah. against. And so, so I think for us at Salt and Light, that's been part of the balance, right? How do we affirm the realities of the situation that the individual has to address while at the same time affirming their responsibility and how they operate within that? Yeah. You know, I think it's a, I think, I think unfortunately we have, because of our politics, we've entered into an era of, of victimhood that's unhealthy. I, I think that what people don't, most people don't realize is that when we bestow victimhood on others, especially whole groups of individuals, often what we're doing in the process is disempowering them, right? I mean, the nature of victimhood is a sense of or a degree of powerlessness. Yeah. Right? And that's not a healthy message to communicate to someone who's trying to to claw their way out of it. Yeah. And so it's a difficult arena right now to affirm the brokenness of some of our systems, yeah. right? That we see and affirm the challenges in that without bestowing victimhood on people so yeah. that we don't actually cripple them right. in the process. And, and I don't think that conversation is being had well. Our politics are so divisive, um, and, and unfortunately, our media actually feeds on that and feeds into that yeah. in a way that is creating a very un- unhealthy climate. It was funny. I actually was down in Jackson, Mississippi a couple months ago, and we're talking, you know, this was the last stronghold um, against fighting against desegregation, right? This was, yeah. uh, I mean, a bastion for everything that was wrong. Right yeah. with, with, our, with our country, this area. And so I was down there and visiting um, where you know Dr. Perkins was from, who birthed the CCDA movement and, and got to go on a tour of his work in the early 60s down there and, and facilitating that tour in part was um, one of his sons. And, and his son, I don't know, late 60s at this point, but has lived in the area his entire life. And I remember a part in the tour, just kind of an off-the-cuff conversation where he... He was raising this issue of what you see in the media and the divisiveness in the South and the the racism and the hatred and the anger. And he was asking another guy who we had stopped to hear from, um, also um, a black male from the South, did he actually think it was that bad? Because from his point of view, it wasn't like how it's painted in the media. Mm -hmm. His view was, you know, yeah, there's strife, but for the most part, people get along. We don't have the same issues we used to have. It just wasn't as volatile as yeah. what is seen in the media. And I found that interesting as someone from the quote-unquote north, right? Mm-hmm. You know, here I am in the deep south, and here this o- older black male who, who witnessed his, his father be beaten almost half to death simply for standing up for the rights of, mm-hmm. of, 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 of people of color, right? Yeah who now here 50 years later is reflecting on the state of things and doesn't see it as badly while living in the deep south as what I witness on my television, right, every day. And so I think that unfortunately, you know, I've been working on turning off some of that stuff, but also diversifying what I see so that I don't get pigeonholed into thinking things are as awful as they are and that I can enter into each relationship with a fairly open context so that we can have constructive conversations yeah. like this that just just aren't happening yeah well thank you for bringing up the race piece because i do think a lot of people don't understand that it's not a coincidence that race and poverty go together that a lot of times people of color in our country are 
the majority, m more so living in poverty than white people are. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that is important to bring up. But I also liked what you said about bestowing victimhood on them. Um, I'm sure I've been guilty of that before, but it is obviously p possible to break the cycle of poverty as an individual. People have done it before and will continue to do it. But it sounds like you guys are also coming alongside them to help with that. And I think that's really cool. Um, I guess I wanted to also ask you, what are some stereotypes that you have seen and heard throughout your years working in this sort of industry? Can you call it an yeah. industry? <laughs> um, about concerning people living in poverty or poverty itself that you would want to address? Yeah, you know, I think that uh, most people look at someone who is poor, right? Um, generally, generally, the assumption is they, they don't work uh, yeah. and or they're lazy, yeah. right? Um, but ultimately, that they're poor because of poor choices that they made, mm -hmm. right? That's our general assumption, I think, yeah. as Americans. In this culture of individual exceptionalism, right, and achievement, is that if, if you're poor, you're usually at fault for being poor, yeah. right? Is there truth to that? In some cases, yeah. I mean, I mean, the, the, the reality of it is, is all of us are a result of um, both the choices that we make and the things that happen to and around us, mm -hmm. right? Um, that it's, it's rarely ever completely one or the other, that both are at play. And I think that, unfortunately, in how we as um, North Americans engage poverty both in the U.S. and outside of the U.S., because we tend to view people in those situations as being in those situations because of their own either lack of education, lack of ability to make good choices, um, that then what they need is positive direction from someone like us, right? That they just, they just, either they just don't know or they just can't, but if we can help them, they'll get there. Forgetting that these people were created uniquely with their own skills, gifts, and abilities, that everyone has some measure of capacity, and that possibly, maybe they simply haven't been given the opportunity to realize it. And so I, I think that if anything I've learned is that in the last 15 years is that every person that comes through our store, our doors here, their story is unique. It might sound a little bit alike one we've heard before, it might look a little bit like something we, we've seen, but it is unique. And because it is unique, we cannot simply apply the same approach to every person in every situation. And that, of course, is where our, our government systems has failed, right? Because we apply the same approach, whether you're from Champaign, Illinois, or Detroit, Michigan, or Sacramento, California. When it comes to someone presenting needs, we, 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 we approach that the same way. Mm -hmm. and, and unfortunately, in doing so, we never get to see the potential of the individual. We never, we never have the opportunity to realize who they are as an individual and the capacity that they bring to their own situation. And so I think that just this idea that, that every person that is poor, materially poor, is poor because of their own poor choices, it's an easy way out for us. Mm -hmm. It's an easy way out for us both to sometimes not help because, well, it's their own fault. They wouldn't be there and weren't for themselves. But it also, at the same time, sometimes unconsciously, is an opportunity for us to pat ourselves on the back. Because, well, what that means then is that I'm not because of my own 
good choices yeah. in my own accomplishments. Yeah. You know, we, we very much relish in this notion as Americans that we can be you know, or sometimes are self-made. Yeah. Right? That it's my own accomplishments and achievements that get me to where I'm yeah. going. I'm very hardworking. And yeah. All those things. Rather than yeah. acknowledging, you know what? No one's really truly ever hardly self-made. Yeah. There are people, there are circumstances, there, there are situations that have contributed to us being where we are right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, being born where I was, when I was, the color I was, the family mm-hmm. I was, all of those things yeah. have an impact. Yeah. And, and I think that we tend to oversimplify that in order to really not feel any responsibility to those that are there, but at the same time to congratulate ourselves. Mm-hmm. So what would you say to people <coughs> who do feel apathetic in a way to this issue in the U.S. or who maybe think, well, you know, there are, there are a lot bigger needs in other countries. Like, people here are lazy. Like, they could get a job if they wanted to. What would you say to those people? Broaden your perspectives. I think the biggest problem is is that most of us fall into the trap of believing that our perspective, our individual perspective, equals truth. And it doesn't. It doesn't always. It doesn't usually. Um, the reality of it is, is, is I could have a conversation with 10 different people with 10 different perspectives and still not have a truly broad grasp of the realities of what life is like for someone in a particular community, in a particular part of the country, from a particular skin color, from a particular socioeconomic class. I mean, I think that the more conversations we have with people who are different from us, who look different, who sound different, who act different, who have different experiences themselves, the broader our understanding is going to be of the world around us, right? And you know, it's kind of like that whole, until you've walked a mile in another man's shoes, right? Yeah. I mean, it's that kind of idea that until you understand, until you really know what it's like to be that person, you really don't know yeah. why they're the way they are, why they think the way they do, why they do the things the way they do. Um, and, so, and so you have to, I mean, for me as part of this you know, leadership cohort where I'm interacting with 20 different, 22 different people from all over the country, different genders, different races, um, different backgrounds, I think that's been the coolest thing is just to hear all these different perspectives. I might not agree with all of them, but if I'm at least willing to listen, then I have the chance to, to kind of bring that in as an additional filter with how I see the world. Yeah. And so I think that for anyone who is truly apathetic or, or, or doesn't necessarily see some of these issues the way maybe you, you know, we're talking about them, I think you just have to broaden your perspective. I mean, you know, it's it's really difficult to to empathize or even sympathize with a poor person if you don't know any poor people. Yeah. I, I can't begin to even, you know, comprehend what it's like to be a 20-something-year-old black guy if I don't know any. Yeah. Right? I mean, it's not to say that all of these other people's perspectives equal truth either. Yeah. Right? But yeah. it's just to say that, you know what, if you're just relying on your own you're in a pretty shallow pool. Yeah, that's true. So let's move back to talking about Salt and Light specifically. You, you already touched on how you used to do things before 2014, right? Where it was handouts in yeah. a way, right? So can you talk about how the new model functions? 
Yeah, so, so you know, and, and, and kind of trying to figure out, okay, how do we move from doing for to doing with? What does that look like? How do we, how do we recognize and acknowledge that there is a need for access mm-hmm. to basic resources like food and clothing, right? But how do we do it in a way that's developmental? How do we do it in a way that actually affirms the individual, builds on their unique skills, gifts, and abilities, and helps to move them forward? Uh, that's where we came to where we are today. And so what we have now is, as opposed to people lining up for hours and waiting in the cold and the rain for a bag of groceries they didn't pick out, um, our participants have the opportunity to volunteer to work at any nonprofit uh, in Champaign County. And for every hour they work, they earn store credit at minimum wage eight and a quarter an hour, and they can use that store credit to then shop within our grocery and our thrift store. So this is a complete paradigm shift, right, from how we were doing it and how typically we engage with this need. Uh, And it has so many implications from one, right, just affirming and empowering the individual to use the skills they have, right, to acquire the resources they need. That That is massive. I cannot, I cannot overstate how important that is in developing the individual's sense of self-worth to the point that they then feel they have the capacity to make other choices and move forward and affecting change in their life and so so it's you know it's been beautiful to see that to see how people access and utilize that resource and the feedback we get on how it makes them feel about themselves how they see themselves and so for us we actually have we, we kind of have two groups of people now, um, and we're, we're continuing every day to work through how do we best serve these two groups. So we have those individuals that are utilizing this opportunity who have capacity for meaningful employment outside of Salt and Light, right? Mm-hmm. And so for those individuals, we want to provide access to this resource while developing them so that they can step out into this other outside meaningful employment. Mm-hmm. But we also have now a whole group of individuals for whom... Meaningful employment outside of Salt and Light is not a realistic possibility because of their capacity, whether it be individuals um, with developmental disabilities, Mm -hmm. whether it be um, elderly people with uh, physical limitations, whether it be individuals with um, emotional, mental health issues. Mm -hmm. And so, so that group, one, is much larger now in this model than it was in our old model. Because that's a common question we get is, well, what about the people who can't? right? Yeah. The people who can't work. And generally, when people ask that question, that's who they're thinking about, right? Or yeah. Those with developmental disabilities, those with physical limitations, the elderly. We have exponentially more of those people now than we did when we were simply giving it away. Yeah. And I believe the reason for that is, is those groups of individuals often feel diminished, mm-hmm. right? Are often treated as though they can't. Yeah. And so when given an opportunity to contribute meaningfully to the community, to acquire the resources they need to their own capacity, they jump all over it, Yeah. right? They want that, they, they crave that sense of community, they crave that, that, that heightened sense of self-worth, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so it's been awesome to see this. So we have those two groups, and so we're really looking at them as kind of the lifetime credit earners, right? Those individuals who, they're, they're likely never going to be able to, to find outside employment. So for, for, for them, we're that safety net, but we're a healthy safety net. We're a safety net that gives them an opportunity to contribute to their community and feel good about themselves in the process mm. while meeting the physical needs that they have. And so, so the credit earning piece is completely unique and innovative. There's nothing like that in the country, but it's also a, a social entrepreneurial model 
right? So our store is not just open to those people who are in need. It's not just open to low-income individuals. It's open to the whole community. And so anyone can come in and shop with their dollars and cents. And through that, it actually helps to fund the programming. So we've transitioned from a model that was 100% reliant on donations from the community, from individuals, businesses, and churches, to by the end of this year, we're expecting to be 85% funded through people shopping in the store. And so, so that's a completely, when we, in this day and age, when nonprofits are struggling to raise yeah. funds and are constantly needing more and more support, we actually are developing a market-based social entrepreneurship model that can yeah. be self-sustaining into the future. At the same time, it creates jobs. So we've gone from an organization that had four full and part-time staff to right now we have 43 Half of them are coming from that generational cycle of poverty. Half of them are people who have stood in line at our food pantry line or at other places in the past who are now working in the community. Mm-hmm. And so, so it really has this kind of three-pronged approach of, of developmentally providing access to these resources, yeah. creating jobs in the process, and doing it with a self-sustaining system. And so, you know, for us, this credit-earning piece is kind of – uh, the pillar, right? That's that's the foundation that draws everyone in. But we have educational opportunities that we wrap around that, right? To, yeah. You know, from financial education and soft skills, jobs training to computer technology and and childcare for participants who are working on site or attending classes. We want to wrap around the individual to provide them with the supports they need in order to move forward and out of needing to earn credit. Mm, wow. So how have you seen it work? I mean, it's only been four years or so since you've been implementing the new model, have you seen it change compared to when you had the old model in place? Yeah, so, you know, the changes that we saw immediately were mostly related to the atmosphere, Hmm. right? Like in the old model, people that were coming in the door were weighed down with shame. You know, they wouldn't look in the eye, shoulders slumped, body language said it all. And it was something that we tried so hard to overcome. Yeah. I mean, it didn't matter how friendly we were, how welcoming we were, how non-judgmental of an environment we tried to create, that was ever-present. And I believe it's because that loss of dignity that they experienced didn't really have much to do with the disposition of the giver as much as it did with the dynamic of the relationship. Sure. And so when you have that provider-receiver dynamic, it, it, it naturally creates unhealthy relationships. Yeah. And so so right away that was gone. Yeah. I mean, people that were here were were working and felt good about it. So they didn't feel that shame when it came to the resources that they were acquiring. Right away we saw more men than we ever did. Mm-hmm. And our old model, men in particular, I think struggled with that issue of pride. Yeah. And and that diminishment they felt by standing in line whereas women, especially mothers, were more willing to stand in line and do whatever they had to do to provide for their families, right? Yeah. It didn't mean they didn't feel the hurt. Yeah. Uh, it just meant that they were willing to do whatever it took to provide for their family. Mm-hmm. And so right away, we saw more men than we ever did because, well, now they could, they could work yeah. and, and feel better about themselves in that process. And so that atmosphere change right away began to develop a deeper sense of community, right? We, we were not providers and receivers, we will we were equal workers, right? We, yeah. we were working alongside one another in this effort. And so there was a greater, a deeper sense of equality and community that came from that. 
over time, of course, we've seen how this has impacted individuals, right? As individuals have some, for the first time, had someone speak into their lives and affirm who they were in a way that allowed them to realize the potential and the capacity that they never knew they had. Yeah. And as a result of that, move forward and out of needing assistance. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, it's, it's been the stories that we hear from the people, and in large part, how they feel about themselves and how they think about themselves now versus before, mm-hmm. that I think is, the, is one of the greatest impacts mm-hmm. um, that we've seen over the last three years. Really cool, love it. Next I would love to talk about kind of what should we do with this knowledge? Like we just learned a lot about poverty and about a really effective model for helping to alleviate poverty in a community. Um, but not all of us are going to go out and start an organization like you did, right? So so what does it really look like for us as the public to help in poverty alleviation? And I know we've talked about poverty is really complex, like it's not going to happen overnight. But what should we do? Is it donations, like financial donations to an organization like this one? Or clothing donations? Is that it? Or is there more? What would you say about that? So I think, you know, it can be overwhelming. Yeah. Right. As an individual who, you know, has your nine to five, has a family, whatever, and you're yeah. you're 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 wondering, well, what can I do that actually is going to make an impact? Yeah. And I think the 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 first thing is to educate yourself, right? You, I think education, right? We talk about that as the cornerstone for climbing out of poverty, Absolutely. but but education is cornerstone for for how we function in general. And so I think that the deeper and broader the understanding you have about the needs that are in your area, right? Um, the more effective you're going to be as an advocate for those needs. So it has to start there. And I think that's the thing too. I would I, I would say we try and think too big sometimes, and especially as an individual who's just trying to decide where do I give my dollars, where do I give my time, right? Yeah. Um, you have to narrow your focus yeah. because you can't do everything. And, and honestly. The more you diversify your attention and your resources, the less impactful you're going to be. Mm-hmm. And so I think for us, if we could just focus on our own individual communities yeah. where we're at, and if everyone did that, the impact is going to be felt yeah. across the country, right? And around the world. Yeah. And so I think cool. that, you know, as we start with education, it really is, it's understanding, I think, some of these foundational ideologies as far as what are healthy ways to engage yeah. poverty, uh, both just in my daily life and, and, and then in, in my engagement and organizations. But, but then what does that look like in my community? community? Who's doing what? Yeah. And, and what are they doing? How are they doing it? And how does it align with my beliefs as far as what I see as a healthy way to engage yeah. um, developmentally? And so, so I think that you know, if we start there, then it becomes a little clearer and a little easier for, okay, now where do I step in at? I think that obviously nonprofit organizations, churches doing good works, all need financial support, right? Yeah. Um, just be intentional and careful about where you give, yeah. right? Do your homework. Yeah. Know, know, know the ins and outs. Know how they're spending the dollars. Know how much of it's going to the work versus administrative overhead, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. Know, know that kind of stuff. But, but then also, when you give of your time, it's the same sort of thing. It's, it's knowing the same things because investing your time is no less, maybe in some ways more valuable 
than your financial resources. Mm -hmm. And so you need to know where you're doing it and how you're doing it. But ultimately, what we need to seek as individuals is opportunities to engage relationally. Mm -hmm. Change does not happen for any of us outside of relationship. Mm -hmm. Whether we believe that's a spiritual relationship, whether we believe that's familial relationships, mm -hmm. um, or with our next door neighbor, right? It's in relationship that we experience change, positive and negative. Yeah. And if we really want to be impactful in the communities where we are positioned, right, right where we're at, we have to engage relationally. I've got to know my neighbor. Yeah. I can't not know anyone that's on my block, right? right? And so, so I think that we have to seek opportunities that require sometimes more than just ladling soup out into the bowl. Yeah. Right? And that's the hard part because this is where it begins to cost us something. Because giving up an hour where I can just stand and hand out stuff one day a week, whatever, yeah, I lose that hour. But beyond that, there's not much of a toll. Mm -hmm. But when we engage relationally, there's an emotional, physical, often spiritual toll, that, a price that we have to pay to do that, to really be invested in someone else's life. And so the degree that we can do that's going to differ depending on where we're at in our own life, what home and family looks like, mm -hmm. you know, what, what, what my job looks like. And I, I get that. I get that. But until we're really willing to make those sorts of commitments, we would be foolish to expect results that, that require that kind of deep engagement. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, you know, yeah, taking, I mean, you know, us here, what we do wouldn't happen if people didn't make financial contributions. It wouldn't happen if people didn't uh, donate stuff, you know, that they are no longer need. Mm -hmm. But if that's all people ever did, then the kind of change that we hope to see in our lives and the lives of others um, wouldn't happen. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't happen. And so, so as we're able and as we have the capacity, we just we need to listen. Yeah. to what people around us are saying. I think there's a Brandon Heath song that's, you know, give me your eyes or give yeah. me your heart. I love that song because what it's illustrating is how just, and as we go throughout our day, how often we step over, walk around, and completely miss those who are hurting and broken. Mm -hmm. We just don't even see it. Mm -hmm. And I think until we are consciously aware that that exists and are looking for it, we will continue to miss it. And we'll continue to miss opportunities mm -hmm to enter into the lives of others that they might be impacted and that we might be impacted as well. Mm -hmm. mm, wow, that's so cool. I love that. And I think, yeah, that's really good. <coughs> for I know for us personally, we started volunteering here at the beginning of the year, I guess. And part of it was because we had to cut back financially to not be able to donate. And and so we were like, well, maybe we can give with our time instead. And it has been so great in that, like, when we volunteer, we're working with some of the people who came out of poverty and used Salt and Light to help them get their kind of feet back under them and then started working there. And I love hearing their stories and we've gotten to pray with some of them and it's been so awesome. And so, yeah, I would say if there's anybody who is listening and feels like, well, I can just donate. You totally could, but you could also do a lot of other things, right? <laughs> and yeah, they'll always take the donations, obviously. <laughs> right. but, but yeah, that doesn't mean that's going to be the most impactful thing or that's the only way. So if there are people who don't have the money right now, there are definitely other things to do. So For sure. Yeah, that's really cool. You kind of touched on too, 
something else I loved was the community focus. Mm -hmm. The community focus does help because poverty feels like such a huge problem, so huge that we just kind of brush it away because how are we ever going to end it, right? And so I love the community focus because that feels a lot more achievable. And I think it helps us to feel more empathetic towards it too because it's our people and our community. So I think that's a really good idea to just have people focus on their individual communities. Yeah. Well, and it's like, what's that, what's that cheesy but true, um, you know, story or analogy that's used all the time of the kid that's, um, you know, walking on the beach and there's all these starfish that, you know, that that have beached Mm -hmm. and this older guy is watching this kid and there's just, there's just hundreds of these starfish Mm -hmm. and, and it doesn't, they're going to die. I mean, just because they're, they're, they're beached and they're, they're not going to have the, the water they need. But this kid is picking them up and one at a time throwing them back, you know, into the ocean. And then the, the older guy, I think, you know, he kind of is a little mocking, but he's like, you know, there's no way you're going to fix all of this problem, right? There are all of these starfish. You're not going to save all of them, yeah. you know. But the, but, the, you know, but the kid's response basically is, well, I did that one. Right. It yeah. mattered to that one. What I did mattered to that one. I just yeah. threw back there. And so I think that, you know, yeah, if we look at it as we have to solve some huge, you know, national, global or even state problem. Right. Or even my whole community. If I look at it that way, it's going to become overwhelming and I won't be able to. But I, but I do think that, you know, to recognize that it's just right where you're positioned at, but also to be careful not to fall into the trap of thinking you're fixing a problem. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the thing. I think when Helping Hurts talks about the best or is, is one of the most useful things to me is how we, um, as Americans in, in general, often enter into poverty with these God complexes, right? Mm-hmm. That, that we're the fixers. That we, yeah. There's a problem and we're going to fix it. Yeah. And, and the reality is, is that we all have, have and do experience brokenness uh, in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. So we are all broken people. And for us, you know, for, for me in particular, as, as, you know, as a believer, I believe that, that I've been restored only through God's grace, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's not through my own efforts mm-hmm. um, that I'm able to, to really be in any way made whole, right? Mm-hmm. But what I, what I fail to recognize when I see someone in poverty often is, is that they're the same as me, the exact same as me. And that what I have to offer them is not answers for their problems but a relationship mm-hmm. that can actually build us both up and restore both of us into who it is we've been created to be and so i think that that's that's the danger is uh, even some of the language that you know i i know i've used today or is is this idea of you know that we're fixing things we're mm-hmm. you know we're the ones doing um in this and i and i think that that's something that we've got to wrestle with, right? Mm-hmm. Is is do I see myself as better than or more than the other? Whoever that other is. And if ever there's a, a situation or a relationship where I do, I probably shouldn't be in that relationship. Mm-hmm. I should probably step back until I can approach it from a healthier perspective. Mm-hmm. Regardless of how um, quote unquote broken the other person might appear to be or might look, that if I ever come into that um, relationship with any air of superiority, mm-hmm. right? It's never going to be a healthy relationship. Yeah. And so I think that that's something that we've got to, you know, wrestle with. And it's been a beautiful thing to witness here is we have people, like you said, you know, so many different people from coming from so many different walks of life, so many different perspectives working alongside one another. Mm-hmm. You get to see that play out 
often so beautifully, right? Mm-hmm. As people navigate those relationships and, and they do it on equal terms, mm-hmm. right? I, I think that, you know, the people that, that often we've worked with who are materially poor are often sensitive to be treating, being treated as though they're less than. So they don't want they don't want a relationship with someone who's going to see them as a problem or a project. They don't want a relationship with someone who's going to see them as anything other than equal to themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think that if we can do that, when we enter in with that sort of authentic respect and affirmation for one another, that's where a positive, impactful relationship can happen. That's great. So this is my last question that's related to the poverty topic. I was wondering if you had any tips for us as the public, again, even if we don't, we decide we're not going to donate, we're not going to volunteer, we're not going to build relationships, but we still hold influence through our vote, right, if we are voters. So I was wondering, without getting political, so to speak, (laughs) if you could just give us any ideas of what we should look for in public policy or in who we're voting for to help with food insecurity, poverty, homelessness, those kinds of topics. Yeah, so so politics, right, is always a touchy subject as yeah. it relates to poverty. And basically you can surmise from my talk earlier about Lyndon Johnson and his war on poverty that I don't hold what our government has done in high esteem mm-hmm. uh, as far as accomplishing anything of, of note. You know, I think that one of the, if there was one thing, if there's like one thing that I could fix right now as yeah. it relates to policy and, you know, how any of the government programs work, it would be how most of our uh, programming, whether it's food assistance, whether it's um, subsidized childcare, whether it's, you know, health benefits, is that there's often a, a cliff for people um, that does not help them to actually transition into meaningful employment, right? So, I mean, everyone has heard the the story of the single mom with two kids who has benefits and gets a job, right? Probably a part-time job and and starts earning some, but because she has that job, she loses most, if not all, of the benefits that she had. Mm -hmm. Yet the job doesn't make up Mm -hmm. for the benefits that she lost. And so what really needs to happen is is some common sense reform as it relates to how most of these programs are administered that allows individuals the opportunity to transition out of needing these in a way that they don't suddenly lose everything that they had i mean i know that Mm -hmm. right now there are far too many people who who need help but are just above the line for qualifying right yeah. who 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 don't make enough to really survive on but don't make little enough to qualify for assistance mm-hmm. and there are some just because of their own perspectives how they were raised the experiences yeah. that they had who are unwilling to go you know and get assistance and so we'll labor there almost in futility for forever unfortunately yeah. though we also have created this generational cycle of poverty where individuals recognize that I'm better off if I don't. Yeah. Better off if I don't try. Better off if I don't get a job. Better off if I don't get married. Yeah. I, you know, and so, so I think that, you know, unfortunately, there needs to be transition on that end to encourage and push, mm-hmm. right, moving forward. But I think that that's the biggest problem is, is all of these programs, um, quote-unquote entitlements that we've developed over, the, over time, 
have really disincentivized a lot of the things that help people to be successful. Mm -hmm. And so until we make changes in how they work and how those things function Mm -hmm. um, so that it actually does encourage that kind of growth, um, you know, I don't think we're ever going to get there. You know, it was interesting back in um, Clinton's, I think it was his second term, um, they actually passed some bipartisan welfare reform. Right, it was the Welfare Reform Act that they they passed that put certain work components requirements into um, the ability to receive some mm-hmm. of the different benefits that were available, mm-hmm. and and some of what we saw. I'm not saying it was all positive, but some of what we saw from that was an actually a sharp increase in uh, wages, employment, earning of especially single moms and especially single black mothers. Mm-hmm. So that we did actually begin to see some boats rise mm-hmm. in that. And, and I'm not saying it was perfect. I'm not saying it, it in and of itself was the panacea, but it was a step, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, unfortunately, so this was a Democratic president who, who worked for bipartisan reform with Republicans at that time. I think Newt Gingrich, maybe, um, who did this. Well, during Obama's first term in office, he actually took out a lot of the teeth of those those changes that were enacted, and and like you might expect, expect we saw the opposite um, happen mm-hmm. as far as the positive incline. We saw we saw a decline, and so I, I think that there needs to be a lot of thought given to how it's done, so that we recognize the constraints that people are working within. Yeah. Um, but until we do that, right now there is no incentive. Mm-hmm. for a huge chunk of individuals sure. to move beyond. And so I think that, you know, I think that we have to, to think about that and how that intersects with things like how we fund education, how we fund health care. I, mm-hmm. I think that there's a lot of questions that, that we have to wrestle with that I think that we're going to have to be honest with ourselves about what our priorities are as individuals and how, that, how those decisions inform really truly how we view those individuals. Yeah. I think that's a really good point because some people will argue, oh, well, just we just need to end welfare, right? And to just suddenly end welfare would be really harmful for a lot of people, right? Yeah. And I think, you know, it's more of a system of growing responsibility is what it sounds like. And I can kind of relate that to my what I do now for work in education. I work with a lot of underprivileged, at-risk students at the university. And a lot of people that I work with, I've noticed, have this mindset of, we just got to get them graduated. Just get them graduated. Just get them graduated. And while, yes, that's a great goal to get them graduated and get them a degree, just like for a person that's using welfare benefits to get them a job, that's a great goal. But we want them to learn in the process and grow in their responsibility as a student and as an individual so that when they graduate, they don't just fall on their face because then they don't get our benefits anymore, right? They're totally on their own, but they've learned how to take care of themselves and how to not only graduate and have a degree, but then to get a job. And they've gotten work experience and internship experience, right? So all these things so that it's not just like, okay, and we cut them off, right? And I think it's a similar kind of idea of it can't just be from transitioning to welfare benefits to completely on your own, right? Right. Well, I mean, it is. It's. I think that, right, you have to... If you're going to develop an effective plan, you have to have identified what your goal is. Yeah. Right. Uh, otherwise, you you know, if you don't have a clear goal, your plan is is going to meander. Yeah. And so I think that if our goal 
like you said, is simply to, to graduate them. Okay, we just yeah. develop a plan to get them graduated, yeah. right? But if our plan is to help equip them so that they can be quote unquote successful, yeah. you know, contributors to society, right? Yeah. I don't just mean that economically, right. but if that's our goal, well then, like you said, just graduating them isn't going to necessarily accomplish that. Yeah. So we've got to make sure that we have in place the systems that will help to achieve that. And I think, yeah, it's the same thing. I mean, some people, oh, we just need to cut it off. Well, you know, how many jobs are actually available, mm -hmm. right? And how many of those jobs actually pay a living wage? Yeah. I mean, I, 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 you know, it's one of those things where, okay, in our community, that's right, let's get them a full-time job. Well, in our community, a full-time job that pays minimum wage will require them to work 74 hours a week mm -hmm. just to afford the cost of living. Mm -hmm. So what and it's not like we live in a giant city. Here. No, no. And <laughs> yeah. so, so the question is, is what did I accomplish with that, right? Yeah. Because in all reality, that person could work no hours a week mm -hmm. and have all of their needs met. Yeah. <laughs> through the programs that, that we have good. available, that right? Great. Yeah. So why would I go kill myself at a yeah. job I hate, seventy-four yeah. hours a week, just to barely get by? Yeah. And so, so I mean, it's it's any any plan or proposal politically that seems simple is probably bad mm -hmm. because this is not a simple problem. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of issues at play here. The, these are individuals, these are families, these are people who are complex. And so we have to figure out what ultimately is our goal. And that's why for us here, our goal is not just to get people a job. Our goal is not simply financial sustainability. Our goal, um, one, is ultimately tied in with our faith mission as well, but it is mm -hmm. to help individuals realize the fullness of who it is they have been created to be. Right? Yeah. That's, that's complex. That's, there's a lot of different pieces that play into that. So for us, we're not just measuring finances, yeah. right? We're measuring a lot of different things um, in order to help ensure that we are ultimately going to help individuals realize the fullness of their capacity, mm -hmm. right? And what, and that's an individual thing. And so, yeah, I mean, this idea that we could just shut off the spigot tomorrow, Yeah. there's not enough jobs for all of the people that, there's not enough jobs that pay a living wage for all of the people who currently would be moved theoretically into employment to do that. Yeah. I mean, that's the reality of it. And I know that, you know, there's, then there's arguments that intersect with immigration and how that plays in, but, but it's just an unrealistic ideology mm -hmm. that we simply can completely and a hundred percent do away with any form of a safety net. Mm -hmm. That's not realistic. I yeah. mean, and I think that anyone who has kids, mm -hmm. uh, especially who has seen them into adulthood can tend to see the error in that, right? right. I mean, we, we recognize that as people, we're continually growing and learning and, and moving forward, sometimes just a few steps back. But yeah. but, but I, I think that the idea that we could completely do with it is is, is just erroneous. And, yeah. and like I said, I'm, I'm coming from the background of a Midwestern, fairly rural, conservative, yeah. <laughs> you know, upbringing, who yeah. still has some of those ideals, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm not just, I'm not one or the other. I see yeah. the realities of what people face, and that's why we have to get to know them. Mm -hmm. Because if, if you know someone, if you're more than one someone, ideally, who is different than you, then you're going to see, you know what, it's not as simple as I thought it was. And I don't care what the issue is, whether it's poverty, whether it's immigration whether it's mm -hmm. racial reconciliation i don't care what the issue is 
if your if your view is that simplistic, I'm going to argue you probably haven't met enough people who are different. Because mm-hmm. it's something I don't have figured out. I'm still yeah. 40 years old and doing this for 15 years. Yeah. I'm still wrestling with this stuff yeah. and what's right, what's wrong, what's the yeah. what's what's the best way, what's the yeah. what's the worst way. I mean, uh, it's just it's just not that simple. Sure. Yeah. Well, you have my vote if you decided to run. <laughs> well, po- politics, politics is something that I have been uh, passionate about. For I mean, I grew up in that. My dad constantly mm-hmm. would play kind of the devil's advocate to challenge and get me to think about, uh, think critically about yeah. uh, things, and we would argue, you know. And so I've been passionate about politics for a long time, yeah. and and still am, and 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 honestly. Um, have wrestled with over the years, you know, as other people have said, you ought to run, you know, yeah. for, for office or whatever. Yeah. I've wrestled with that, um, wrestled with whether or not that's a, something I want to step into, yeah, sure. whether or not I feel like I could even be effective there versus yeah. how effective I could be where I'm at, yeah. you know. Um, but but ultimately, I mean, obviously, that's the arena in which a, a lot of this change is going to happen. But I do think that the nonprofit world, right? The 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 NGOs, the non-government, mm-hmm. you know, based organizations um, within our country and outside of our country, because of our flexibility, mm-hmm. right? And let's be real: anything ran through the federal or state government is going to be rigid because it's going to be trying and applying this across a much larger scale than we are as individual organizations. But because we have a higher degree of flexibility, I think the answers for the future of what these sorts of things look like for our country are going to come from NGOs. And that's why, honestly, I believe that like what we're doing here, I mean, it's revolutionary to create a model that provides access to the largest need that we have in our country as it relates to food. You know, that's the biggest one. That's where most of the dollars are spent. So to create a model that provides access to that resource in a way that's developmental, that actually moves people forward and affects lasting mm-hmm. change, while creating jobs in the community and doing it self-sustainably, mm-hmm. that's revolutionary. Yeah. You can then take what we're doing here and you can plop that down in any community. And especially if you plop it down in a community that is a food desert, mm-hmm. especially highly urban areas, well, yeah. now you're solving another problem. You're creating access to groceries where they don't have to go to the corner store anymore mm-hmm. and pay $5 for a gallon of milk or have no access to fresh produce. Yeah. I mean, so, so you're, you're, actually, you're actually solving multiple societal issues with one model yeah. that can then be replicated in communities all over the country. And so I do believe that's the future. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the future that it, ma- it makes sense economically. It makes sense from a developmental perspective, working with, with people in poverty. It just, it just is a common sense solution. And so, you know, I think that those solutions are going to be identified by NGOs like us. Yeah. But then ultimately, in order to implement it, especially on a large scale, that's where likely you're going to have to have some political yeah. uh, engagement. Yeah. Okay. So if anyone's listening and wants to start an organization, you're willing to share your model is what I'm hearing. <laughs> yeah, we've we've had that. I mean, over the years, even before our model change, like with yeah. Extreme Makeover, yeah. we were getting emails from all over the world. You yeah. know, people would That's see cool. it. Hey, have you ever started, started uh, thought of starting something like this here in Italy or in um, Afghanistan or in China? Wow. I mean, our, our places we had emails from. And so... So the idea of that, even in the old model, was something that I had thought of, uh, we, we, you know, we wrestled with. Yeah. 
But now with what we're doing, we've really been thinking about it a lot as we've had other organizations come in and observe mm -hmm. on what we're doing and, yeah. and thinking about how they could replicate it. And so for us, we are not interested in, in, in starting new salt and lights. Yeah. I believe that part of what um, makes us work and has helped us to do what we do is that we're local people yeah. who understand the community. Yeah. And so what we're interested in is helping other communities start their own thing. Right. You know, maybe it, maybe it looks just like ours. Maybe it yeah. doesn't. Maybe they have their own little twists, you know, that, yeah. and, and changes that they make because they think it's going to help their community better. Right. Um, but but that's something we're not we're not proprietary in our in our model and what we do. We we are eager to share it with other communities and other people who are interested in affecting lasting change in the lives of those they work with. Yeah, awesome. Okay, now I have some fun questions for okay. you at the time I am. So you might have already said this, but what's the most impactful book you've read? When Helping Hurts. Okay. Beyond a Shadow of a Doubt. Yeah. Who's it by again? Uh, there are two authors, Brian Fickert and I think it's Stephen Corbin. Okay. Um, but yeah, When Helping Hurts. And if you Google it, they actually have small group study they have a whole thing of short-term missions okay. they've got it really has uh, the two authors actually work for the Chalmers Center for Economic Development okay. which is an organization that's involved in um, I, I it sounds like more international relief efforts but relief efforts in general and so they've also created curriculums I mean some of which we're using like we're using uh, their financial education curriculum we're using their um, soft skills jobs training curriculum wow. And so, so yeah, so When Helping Hurts is tied in with all of that. So cool. lots of resources and stuff that people could really glean from. That's awesome. Great. Okay, how about, do you have somebody that you look up to as a role model? Yeah, I mean, there are plenty of people who yeah. have been impactful yeah. in my life and in my walk. Even, even my, you know, even though, um, you know, my, my dad, he doesn't necessarily, uh, we don't operate from the same perspective on yeah. certain things. I mean, um, you know, just work ethic and, and those sorts of things that yeah. you taught me growing up yeah. were, were very influential. But since I've been doing what I've been doing here, you know, I've had a multitude. I mean, my Sunday school teacher was one of the four of us that started Salt and Light. Without him, we wouldn't be here right now. He was my mentor, uh, John Prince, uh, a local uh, businessman who's been involved in ministry his entire life. You know, I've, I was very influential uh, for me in so many different ways. Um, but throughout just the life of Salt and Light, I've had the opportunity to interact with so many different people doing work in their churches and out of their churches mm -hmm. um, all over that have all kind of impacted how I see things, yeah. um, cool. you know, in, in, in good and bad yeah. <laughs> ways. Yeah, I think that's cool. How about, have you uh, listened to anything recently that you think everybody should hear, like a you said you're not a huge podcast listener. <laughs> what about a TED Talk or a documentary or anything like that? You know, it's it's funny. My son actually had me sit down and watch a documentary with him on uh, YouTube. I think it or maybe it was Netflix. It was like a dollar a day, and it was uh, minimalism. Is that it? No, it was three guys who went to I don't remember if it was Peru or Guatemala. I've seen this on and, Netflix. Yeah, yeah. and. Um, you know, it's another one of those things about perspective, right? Yeah. And just seeing what, what people are dealing with and where they're at. I, I actually had a conversation one time. We had a guy who was a, uh, a client in our old model, and he was from the Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And 
I remember asking him because he struggled for years to try and get over here. I mean, his story was so interesting. He actually served um, in, the, in the military for two years because it was required service. And, oh, wow. and he was over in Russia at the time when you couldn't hardly find food at the grocery store. So it wasn't like not having money. It was there just wasn't bread on the shelves at the store, right? So he talks about all of these struggles and trying to get to the U.S. for almost a decade, trying to illegally crossing borders, doing different things because wow. he couldn't get over here legally. And finally he made it. He came in through Florida and was detained for like seven, eight, nine months. I don't know. And, and went through all of this process ultimately to be able to stay here. And so when he was over in Ukraine, he actually was an accountant. He had... Um, you know, that, that certification and, 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 you know, had a job. Well, so he gets here. Well, that doesn't transfer. Right. And so he's trying to make his way. He's going to school. Um, he's working. He ends up getting hurt and having surgery, different things to where he's now standing in line in our pantry. Wow. So this is a guy who, who, who's intelligent, has skills, had, had a future to some degree, right. Where yeah. he was from but struggled so mightily to get here and finds himself in our line. And I, would, mm-hmm. I asked him because we became friends because we were the only people that he knew here. And so he ended up, one of the surgeries he was going to have, he had to have someone there. He, didn't, he had no friends, no family, nobody local. So he asked me if I would come sit in the waiting room because I wouldn't perform the surgery without him having someone present. And so, so through that experience, we began to talk and I, I, you know, driving him home and getting medicine and everything. I was just asking him questions as I was hearing all this stuff about his life I'd never heard before. And one of the things I asked him was like, you know, does it ever bother you, you know, everything that you went through to now find yourself in the position that you're in? You know, do you ever regret going through all that to get here? And without hesitation, he said, not at all. This is the best country on earth. You know, that has, I was like, wow. And so then I asked him, I said, well, does it ever frustrate you when you're waiting in line? This was in our old model. When yeah. you're waiting in line for food and you, and you hear and see people and how they engage in that and how, how their views on things, given you know what it's really like not to have anything. Yeah. And, and, and how you know, their struggles are not at all like the struggles you've experienced or have seen in other countries. Mm-hmm. Right. And once again, he didn't really hesitate much. He just said, no. He said, you know, it's all a matter of perspective. Mm-hmm. He said, they don't know any different. And yeah. so their situation to them is serious. It's really bad, yeah. It is really bad. Yeah. You know, and so I just, that really, I mean, this was 11 years ago. Mm-hmm. That has stuck with me. I yeah. mean, in that, you know, we're so quick to judge others and to, and, and to kind of, you know, jump to conclusions and make assumptions. And, and, and sometimes if we just pause and recognize that our mm-hmm. perspective is our perspective, yeah. how that influences how we engage those things going on around us. It was just, right. I don't know, really struck me. Yeah. That. Mm, that's really interesting. All right. If, if listeners could walk away with one thing today, what would you want it to be? Your perspective does not equal absolute truth. Mm-hmm. It's one slice of a very big pie. Yeah. And until you try all the different kinds that are out there, you really can't say that cherry's better than apple. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, and I, I think just get to know people that are different than you are. Yeah. And in doing that, you will be better for it. Yeah. I like it. All right. How can people find out more if they want to find out more about Salt and Light or connect with you? Yeah, so they go to our website, um, www.saltandlightministry.org, 
is the best place to start. Obviously, okay. lots of information about who we are, what we do, how we do it. Uh, there's emails, you know, there, phone numbers there, you know, so especially if you're, if you're not local, you yeah. know, go there. You know, if, if you're geographically, you know, relevant, come by. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing like seeing it. People mm-hmm. have a picture of what poverty alleviation looks like from a food pantry, clothing closet kind of perspective. And yeah. so regardless of how well we describe what we do here, there's nothing like seeing it. And so if you can, you know, come in. But if not, go there and, you know, shoot us an email, give us a phone call. I mean, we love talking with groups. We love helping people along their own journey of understanding. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time yeah. to talk to me, to talk with us. I think that people will probably learned a lot from our conversation and hopefully created awareness. And I'm, I'm just, yeah, I love what you guys are doing. So thank you for taking the yeah. time. Thank you for having me. Yeah. I'm sure your mind is racing right now with all the new content you just learned. I can relate. Trust me, I had to listen to this conversation a couple times to really remember all the different points that we talked about. I know that we talked about a lot here, but like I said, I just thought it was all so good. And there were so many different things that Nate said that triggered new thoughts and questions in my own mind. So that's why I had to keep going. I'm sure you can understand. And I'm sure you'd love to pick Nate's brain too. And like I said in the episode, he is open to that. He is really passionate about seeing poverty come to an end. He is really passionate about serving communities in need. And he is really passionate about the model that he read about in the book, When Helping Hurts. And he is ready and open to share with anybody who wants to learn. The way that Nate explained poverty and hunger makes so much more sense to me now. I liked how he explained that, especially in the U.S., poverty doesn't necessarily mean a lack of things, but rather a lack of opportunity. And when it comes to hunger, again, it's not usually a lack of things, but a lack of good options. I think what he said about education is key. We have to really be able to understand the problem to be able to come up with a good solution. Similarly, we have to really understand our communities and the needs our communities have to know what a good solution would be. You guys have heard me say many times that I believe education changes the world, and I think that Nate did a great job of pointing that out too. If we want to help, if we want to be an advocate for those in need, if we want to make any kind of difference at all, we first have to get educated ourselves. I also was really moved by the way that Nate explained the model of moving from just giving out handouts and doing charity work to building esteem in the community so that they can take pride in what they're doing and take ownership in a way of helping themselves. I think it's so powerful and obviously it has yielded huge impacts. Hearing Nate explain how he has realized that he is not that different from the community he serves was also such a sweet sentiment. It reminded me of one of my favorite Maya Angelou quotes, that we are more alike than we are unalike. That's such a good point and such a great thing to keep in mind, especially when trying to make that shift from just being the charity givers. Also, I have to mention, was anybody else totally fangirling about the fact that the Montgomery family was on Extreme Makeover Home Edition? I mean, I am pretty sinking excited about that. I felt like I had a celebrity in my midst when he told me that. I did look up the episode in case anybody would like to go and watch it, and it is terrible quality on YouTube, but it's there and you can see what's happening. 
I'm sure Nate will laugh when he sees that because he probably has some much better quality recording of it at home. But this is what I could find for free on the internet that I could share with everybody. So there's a link to that along with everything else that we reference in the show notes, which you can view on the app that you're listening to in the description of the show or on my website, heartfelthippie.com. While you're browsing around, I would love it if you could leave me a rating and a review. I would so appreciate it and it definitely helps other people to find the show. I would also love to hear from you and hear what you thought about Nate and I's conversation along with any questions that you have for either of us. I always love connecting over Instagram and Facebook, but you can also reach out to me by email, which I've posted in the show notes as well. I know I've taken up a lot of your time, so I don't want to take up too much more, but get excited for my next episode releasing in two weeks where I am interviewing Diana Stewart and we are talking about green cleaning. It's a super popular movement going on right now, and I think that also comes with a lot of stereotypes and myths, so I'm really excited to address these with Diana because it's gonna change the way that you think about your home and your work environment. Super great content once again, and I'm excited to share it with you guys. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this episode talking about poverty. This is a huge conversation and a really complex topic, like Nate and I said, but one that requires more education and more conversation. So I hope you learned a lot today, and I hope you feel enlightened and empowered to go continue to learn more and dive into your own community. Like Nate said, if we all took the time to invest in our communities in whatever way that looks like, it's going to have exponential impacts. So keep going, keep seeking to get enlightened, and remember that you are making an impact on this world. See you soon. Peace out.